Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. Last Sunday, I was returning home from church, and I had one of my sons with me. He had been serving up in the middle school area, and as we arrived in our neighborhood and we're getting close to our house, my son pointed over to a part of our lawn, and he said, there's a dead animal over there. Mom and I saw it last night, and I hadn't noticed it before, and so we drove over to that part of the lawn. I have a fairly large lawn, and I parked the car and I got out and I looked at the animal and it was a, it was a small deer. It wasn't a baby, but it, it wasn't big. It was just a, a, a small deer, but it, it was dead. I don't know if it had a disease. I don't know if it had been hit by a car and just ended up in our lawn. I'm not sure what happened, but I could tell it had been there a couple days. It's just that my wife and I had been out of town and so we weren't aware of it. And so my plan was, on Monday, when the DNR, Department of Natural Resources, opened, that I would give them a call and and ask them what to do. Maybe they'd want to test it or whatever whatever you do. And, and, And then how do I dispose of the thing? I really had no idea. But Monday came, and I jumped in the car and headed for the office and completely forgot about it. I didn't see the deer, so nothing triggered my memory about it. And I came to the office and started working. But then I started to answer some of my emails, and I came across an email that was from one of my neighbors to all the other neighbors. And the email said, there's a dead animal in our neighborhood, and and I have made a few phone calls to try to figure out what to do with it. Now, she didn't mention it was in my lawn, but after she put that out there, and I was very grateful she did, But after she put that out there, then someone else in the neighborhood said, well, I've got a bobcat, and I'm willing to come by and pick it up and bury it, but I don't don't know where to bury it. Someone want to offer a place on your property, and and at that point, I sent a message back, well, maybe it could be buried in the woods behind my house, but I knew that'd be a challenge to get the bobcat back there. But then another neighbor stepped forward and said, well, I've got a place on my property where it won't disturb anything. We'll bury it there. And about an hour later, I would guess, and I'm guessing because I was still at the office here, about an hour later, this neighbor with the backhoe and the one who had offered his property both met on our property, and they took care of it. They solved the problem. They disposed properly of this deer. I was surprised that this unfolded the way it did because from my perspective, this was kind of mostly my problem. Uh, Maybe it could become a neighborhood problem if I left it there too long, but it was was kind of my problem. And for a neighbor to take upon herself the initiative to begin exploring this thing, she even found out that the DNR didn't want to test it because it was a little bit too young. But for another neighbor to come in and be willing to come and get it and someone else to volunteer his property, and I... I just was surprised because all of this ended up being taken care of before I had time to do anything about it, before I even knew what to do, and I knew this was not a pleasant task. Nobody would want to do this. This was the kind of thing that everybody could ignore, but they chose not to. 
And I was reminded why I like my neighborhood so much. I just live in a great neighborhood. And this was an example where they stepped forward and, and practically applied what Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. They just put action into it and, and took care of it. They saw a need and they, they were willing to do something about it. Now, I admit that's not always how I respond to these kinds of things, these opportunities to serve or meet a need. Uh, sometimes I decline these opportunities because I've got a good reason why. For example, when I'm asked to help like move somebody, my back is such that I just, I, I can't, I, I really shouldn't do that, you know? But oftentimes it's just plain selfishness. And I've wondered before whether or not I would have had more joy in my life, throughout my life, if I had approached all of life with a different perspective, and that is the perspective of serving and helping other people because God, I think, has created us to be such that when we give ourselves away, somehow we find life, somehow we find joy. Today, we're going to continue our series titled Finding Joy in Uncertain Times. It's a series that's based on the New Testament book of Philippians, and I mentioned last week that it's, it's remarkable that one of the main themes of the book of Philippians is joy because Paul wrote this book when he was a prisoner in Rome, and yet despite his circumstances, he had experienced joy. And the church itself actually was founded under difficult circumstances. Last week, I kind of laid a foundation for the whole book and talked about how Paul and Silas and Timothy and other leaders started this church, but Paul and Silas, two of the leaders, ended up in prison, and they were beaten. And yet we find them at midnight in the book of Acts singing praises to God. And once again, you see this theme that somehow they were able to have joy in the midst of their circumstances. Well, last week, after kind of introducing the story of the church, we spent some time in chapter one, which it focuses on the gospel. And my point last week is the gospel really is good news. If you put your trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, you have something to be joyful about regardless of what's happening in the world. And I mentioned four things. I said, first of all, we have peace with and from God. Like regardless of what's happening in the world, if you are right with God, if you know that you're at peace with God, you can have joy. It's like, all oh, this is falling apart, but if God is for me, who can be against me? We talked about the fact that you're part of a community. In other words, when you're going through difficult times, you're not alone. Paul understood he was in prison, but he didn't have to face even that alone. We talked about how we have a promise from God, specifically that he'll stick with us to the end. In Hebrews, we read, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. And we have a purpose for living, Christ himself. And the heart of chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, was Paul wanted to assure the Philippians that even though he was in prison, the message was not, the gospel was not. He was in chains, but this message was just going out even in greater ways due to his imprisonment. And so this wonderful message that brings joy was spreading to more and more people, and it brought him great joy. But today I want to talk about Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11, and my main thesis is this, that our relationships can be a source of great joy. That Paul took great joy in his relationships with the Philippians and with other people. And I think sometimes we think that, that we'd be better off without relationships, or maybe some of us are, have the type of personality where we like being alone and I know that's kind of the way I'm wired. I love to just get away, like at a cabin, away from people. 
But I've discovered that when I do that, if I'm gone more than one day, I begin to think, you know, I miss people. I really do like people. And part of what it is about is serving others. And I think we think if I am selfish and self-centered, if I devote my attention on my own things, which we tend to naturally do, that we'll come out ahead and we'll be happier, but just the opposite is the case. Even the secular world will acknowledge the fact that if you're kind of discouraged about things, try focusing outward. Stop looking at just your own world and begin thinking in terms of maybe there's someone you can encourage, someone you can help, someone you can serve. How can our relationships be a source of great joy? I see five things in Philippians chapter 2. The first one is this. They can be a great joy to us when we understand how wonderful our relationship with God is. This is the starting point. I think it would be it would do us a great deal of good to focus on our relationship with God and really come to that point where we understand how wonderful that is. And this is so important because the joy we have in our relationship with God is going to impact the joy we have in relationships with other people. This is the starting point. Let's read Philippians 2, 1 and 2, where Paul says, if then there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation or comfort of love that you have, if any fellowship or companionship with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focused on one goal. Now, verse 1 here includes four if statements. He says, you know, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation or comfort in love, if there's any fellowship or companionship in the Spirit, if there's any affection and mercy within your heart, any compassion there. And we can read that and think that these are conditional statements, but that's not what they really are. These are not hypothetical situations. The, the New Testament was written in the Greek language, and in the language in which it was written, those if statements are called first-class conditions. And they should be translated, if as is the case, or since this is the case. Dr. Leitner puts it this way, the if clauses being translations of first-class conditions in Greek speak of certainties that this is something that, that is true about us. If you know Jesus Christ, if you have responded to the gospel message, we are in a place where we're encouraged by Christ. Hasn't, haven't you been encouraged in your relationship with Christ? We are comforted by his love for us. We do have a connection with the Holy Spirit as we go through our day. We do have compassion within our hearts. All these things are true about us. And because they are true, we can have joy starting with our relationship with God. But number two, our relationship with God can be a source of great joy when we understand, or I'm sorry, when we pursue unity with others. All of my points here, by the, day, by the way, the main word here begins with the letter U, which I think is a first for me. I don't know that I've ever made the main point, the letter U. But as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, that's a, a good point that the heart of what I'm talking about here today is don't focus on you, as in Y-O-U. Because when we focus on ourselves, we lose joy. But when we pursue unity and oneness with other people, it produces joy. Let's read Philippians 1, 2, 1 and 2 again, if there's any encouragement in Christ, which there is. 
any consolation of love, which there is, if there's any fellowship with the Spirit, which there is, any affection and mercy, then he says, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love toward each other, sharing the same feelings, or some of your versions say, be of one spirit with a small s, and focusing on one goal. In other words, be united, pursue unity. Paul says here, I want you to make my joy complete. My joy will be complete if these things are true. If you're united in the way you think, you're united in your love, you're united in your spirit toward one another, the feelings you have toward one another, and united in purpose. And the purpose is the good news of the gospel from the previous chapter. This matters because disunity is a joy killer. I think those of you that are married um, could relate to this illustration, but when there's a disagreement between my wife and me, there's something between us, I have trouble being joyful about really anything. I'll, I have come to the office on not many occasions, thankfully, but I've come to the office on a few occasions, and I wanted to get about my work, but all I could think about is things are just not quite right. We got into some argument that morning or maybe the night before that wasn't resolved. We usually do resolve things the night before, but, but I'll be in my office and I'll try to dig into my work. I'll even try to have a, a devotional time with God and I'll sit there and all I'll think about is things aren't right. It's just hard to move on when things aren't right. And, and really what I tend to do is I'll spend the first part of the, the morning thinking in terms of why I'm right and she's wrong defending my position. But then at a certain point, I'll begin to see things from her perspective. At a certain point, I'll, I'll begin to value being united with her more than whatever the issue was. And we'll end up talking about it, and we'll end up resolving it, and we'll end up having joy. It comes when we're united. Now, last week, I told you the book of Philippians was basically a thank you letter to the Philippians for sending money to help his circumstances so that he'd be more comfortable. But theologians agree that there was a second main purpose for which he wrote this letter, and that is there were these two women in the church that we don't read about until chapter 4 that couldn't get along. He was addressing a problem with disunity. Their names were Yodi and Syntyche. In Philippians 4, 2, Paul writes, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He goes on to say, and I ask you all to help this, these women. Because these were women that had been partners with Paul in the gospel message and the mission, but they couldn't be partners with one another. And he had heard there was this disunity in the church. And often, by the way, if it just involves one couple, people begin to take sides. It ends up being a bigger thing than just the two. I want you to think for a moment, though. Imagine for a moment that you were either a Yodia and Syntyche and and this letter arrives from the Apostle Paul, and you're so excited to hear from, from this co-labor of yours. And, and they're reading this letter, and then they get to chapter 4. And I urge Yodia, you and Syntyche, get along. It must have just, I mean, put a stopper in the whole thing. And it's a little bit surprising that, that Paul did this. It actually looks like it's out of character. Like, why didn't Paul do this privately? You know, for all eternity... Anyone that meets Yodia is going to say, oh, that's you, you know? This letter was circulated to all the churches. Everybody heard about this, and so why did he do this in such a public way? Well, I think part of the reason he did it in a public way 
is because even though these two were the two initial ones that weren't getting along, this unity is something we all struggle with. Paul saw an opportunity to address an issue in the church that was huge. It's essential that we get along with one another. It's essential that we have unity with one another. Jesus acknowledged that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was anticipating being arrested as he was just so burdened by all that he was about to undergo. And what do we find him praying about in the Garden of Gethsemane? Unity. I pray, God, that these disciples will be one, even as you and I are one, so that the world will know you sent me. How essential this is. But I think it's a secret to joy. And part of the way, by the way, we'll get to this unity as I think if we don't value our issue more than we value the person. That's often what the issue is. We value whatever it is our position is about something more than we love that other person. And we hold on to that. And if that's the case, it's a problem. So relationships can be a source of great joy when we understand how wonderful our relationship with God is, when we pursue unity with others. Third, when we view ourselves as being under others. Now, this is one that some of you immediately might uh, have a little bit of an issue with, so I, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. Uh, I'm not talking here with this third point that, that you're to say, woe is me, and to have a low self-esteem. I'm not talking here about being a doormat for other people. What I am talking about with this third point is what Paul talks about in your thinking, view others as greater, others as more important. Others as being above you in your heart and mind. Their needs being more important. Read verse 3 with me or together. Let's read it. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility. By the way, this is the issue with these two women. Rivalry, they were rivals, and they were, there was pride there, which is what keeps us from being united. He says, but in humility, humility, humble yourself, consider others, as more important than yourselves. When you think of other people, you're more important than I am. Your needs are more important than I am. This, this isn't natural, of course, to the way just humanity. We tend to compare ourselves with other people. We really do like it when others view us as more important. I think we go to great lengths to prove that we're more important many times. I realize that this was happening with my three brothers and me, when we would get together, my wife brought it to my attention. That we would get together and we would kind of talk about where we were succeeding and where we were doing well. And at a certain point, she said to me, you know, you realize that this is kind of creating some competition, like, like all of you are trying to prove you're better than the other one. And I realized, well, at first I thought, no, that's not true. But then I thought, no, you're right. I've learned my wife, by the way, is usually right. It just makes things easier. But this, this way in which we view other people. And it's wearying. Social media doesn't help, by the way. You go online and you see these perfect portraits and photos and everybody. They're having so much fun. Life seems so perfect for everybody. You don't see all the bad stuff. And when we compare ourselves with that person, we kind of feel deflated. Or maybe because of what we post, we feel exalted. Both are a problem. One leads to pride, the other one leads to discouragement. Paul said when we just compare ourselves with ourselves, we lack understanding. But what if we didn't care what people thought about us? What if, in fact, we just viewed others as more important 
Now, this, I think, raises an issue in some of our minds because what if you are more important? I mean, let's be honest, we live in a society that views certain people based on their career or their wealth or their position or even their good looks or whatever. We view some people as being more important than other people. And you might say, yeah, but I'm in this position where I'm kind of supposed to be the most important one. And you might even be used to walking in a room and everybody views you as kind of the most important one. What do you do? You use that position of importance to prop up other people to look for the good in others, to put their needs above your own, to humbly view yourself and say, you're more important than I am. I'm not suggesting we pretend we're not important, but they are important in some way, in ways that we're not. Dr. Jameson writes, instead of fixing your eyes on those points in which you excel, fix them on those in which your neighbor excels. Your neighbor excels in some ways. And when you're with people, instead of kind of saying, oh, I'm in a better place than this person, which our minds and hearts do many times, we begin to look and say, how can I really encourage and lift this person up? How can I view this person as more important? It matters because the way you view someone in your heart is going to come out in how you treat them. I've used the example before of, of going to a restaurant, and I've observed the way some people treat waiters and waitresses. It really it bothers me sometimes. And I've been with groups before where one, one of the parties in our group treated waiters and waitresses as if they were dirt. Like, you're my servant. I'm greater than you are, and you'll do what I say. That's how they view that person. As I was reflecting on this, though, a thought occurred to me that um, there's one way in which the waiter or waitress is greater than you are. You know what it is? It's in the serving of the food to you. You better never forget they're giving you your food, okay? Yeah, yeah, you better watch that. I've heard stories. I know enough people in the industry. I know what happens when you mistreat people. And what happens in the back? I don't want to gross you out. I don't want to discourage anyone. But they're, you better, they're important. And so are others. The idea here is we treat people with dignity. The idea here is that we view people as ones for whom Christ died. That makes them valuable, important. Fourth, our relationships can be a source of great joy when we're unselfish in meeting the needs of others. This just gets down to serving. When we sacrifice our time, our talents, our finances, our strength, Again, I think God has designed us to care about and meet the needs of other people. Philippians 2, 4, everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. In other words, look out for the things that matter to the other person and, and try to meet that need. This matters to you, try to meet that need. Now, we all naturally spend time meeting our own needs. This verse isn't saying, of course, disregard your needs, disregard what you want. It's saying just... Just include that. Don't only look out for your interests, but also for their interests as well. You see, both in the Old and New Testaments, we are told to love our neighbor as ourself. And so sometimes we just reflect on, well, how do I love myself? Well, in the morning, I get myself a cup of coffee, and then I look to my wife, say, would you like, like a cup of coffee? I do that every morning. Can I get you a cup of coffee every morning when I'm getting my own? And you begin to think of the needs of the other person. And I think this brings joy. 
Dr. Melick puts it this way, any concerns of others were to become the concerns of all. Now, again, I think when we serve others and when we're not selfish but selfless, it brings joy. And about a year ago, I shared a story that I want to repeat here this morning from a guy named Kevin Harney in his book, Seismic Shifts. He tells a wonderful story that illustrates this, how joy goes away when we're selfish. It's a story of this little kid, he was probably two years old, maybe three years old in the nursery at church. He had a little red ball in each of his hands and he had three Nerf balls pinned under his pudgy little legs. And all the other kids were wanting those balls. He was hogging them all for himself. And any time a kid came near, especially those balls that were further away from him by his legs there, he'd snarl at them, is what Harney says. He wanted to make it real clear that these don't belong to you, these are mine. And this went on for some time. Uh, Harney says that he probably should have stepped in and done something about it, but he was just so fascinated by what was unfolding, he just, just stood there watching and he realized this little kid was growling, he was posturing, he was keeping all the other kids away. Harney describes the scene in this way, he says, the boy was like a hyena hunched over the last scraps of a carcass, this snarling little canine was not in the mood for sharing. The other kids circled like vultures around the kill looking for a way to jump in and snatch a ball without being attacked and bitten. It's a great story. At a certain point, Hardy noticed something. He said there was no happiness for this little boy. The little boy that was holding all the balls, you'd think if he had them all, he'd be happy. There was no happiness. He said, in fact, there was no happiness within 10 yards of the boy. In fact, he realized that this little boy's selfishness had been like a, 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 a dark hole that had sucked all of joy and all of happiness into it. And this little boy didn't give up the balls until his parents finally came in. And, but we won't have joy, happiness, if it's all about us. It needs to be about others. Last point I want to make is this, that I think that um, we can have joy in our relationships when we use the example of Jesus, when we follow his example. We allow it to motivate us to be selfless. No one modeled this better. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, we read, make your attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. This is one of the most theologically rich passages in all the Bible. It describes Jesus. It says he was in the form of God. This does not mean he was like God. It doesn't mean he was like in the shape of God when it says form of God. No, this is talking, the word should be understood to mean the very essence. In every single way, Jesus was God. The creator of Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He had all of the attributes of God, equal with God in every way. All the privileges of God, used to being worshiping, worshiped for all eternity. That's who he was. No one had ever been more important that entered this world. No one had been. And he could have viewed himself really highly, but what did he do? You know, it started, of course, when he, when he set aside all that he had in heaven. And he came down to this sin-scarred world. And then he came in the form of a baby. 
taking on flesh and blood. And he limited himself to that form while he was here on the earth, confining himself to a human body and one that could experience everything that we experience that's bad. Thirst, hunger, sleeplessness, pain. This, of course, was essential to the story because Jesus had to be exactly like us if he was to die in our place and for our sin. Now, it says he was in the form of God, but he, he took on the form of a slave, and it says he emptied himself. And this doesn't mean that he ceased being God. Vincent puts it this way, he laid aside the form of God, and so doing, he did not divest himself of his divine nature. The change was a change of state, the form of a servant for the form of God. Practically, what this means is that Jesus did not use his divine attributes when he walked the earth. If he performed miracles, it was through the power that God, the Father, or the Spirit provided. It wasn't, he wasn't relying on his divinity because, again, he had to go the distance and say no to temptation and live a sinless life so that he'd be qualified to die for sinners, humans. He became fully human. But his example, he left glorious heaven. He confined himself to flesh and blood. He set aside his rights, his privileges, his power. And then he submitted himself to the, the death, not a, not a painless death of just falling asleep and you're, you know, going to dying that way. It was a cross of all things. And you know why he did it? Because he considered you more important. He viewed your needs as more important. He said, this is a real issue that I can address here. I'm going to set aside my privileges, my rights. And though in reality he was greater, he put our needs above his own. He viewed us as being greater. And what was the outcome for Jesus? Well, in verse 9 we read, For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Of course, it was always, he always had the name above every name, but here he kind of earned it. So that, verse 10, in the future, this is what's going to happen, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We humble ourselves and serve. This is the way to exaltation in the Bible. You lay down your life, you end up getting it back in life. So let me summarize and ask some questions by way of application. Our relationships can be a source of great joy when we understand how wonderful our relationship with God is, when we understand how we can pursue unity with other people, when we understand and view ourselves as being under other people, when we're unselfish in the way we meet the needs of other people, and when we use the example of Jesus. So let me ask these questions. Is your relationship with God, first of all, a source of joy for you? We talk about this all the time around and develop that relationship this first point, and I encourage you to just choose one. Develop your relationship with God because your love for others will come from that. We love because he first loved us. Second, are you losing some of your joy because you're not reunited with others? Is there someone with, with whom you need to humble yourself and pursue unity? Set aside whatever the issue is and put the other person first. Third, do you view others? How do you view others in your heart? Do you see them as being more important can you imagine just standing and talking with people and all the time you're thinking, you're really an important person? You know, I think that would make a difference in how we treat them. Are there opportunities where you have to selfishly serve others? God will give opportunities. Of course, Josh gave an example of that, serving hospital workers. 
And finally, how might the example of Jesus help you love better? Some of us maybe just need to reflect on, on what he did for us so that we might learn from that example. As we wrap up this morning, we're going to sing a song for you titled, Known by Love. It is something that we need to be known for, our love. And part of it, the song is a prayer that goes, come and show me how to be your hands and feet. I want to be the friend you would be to others. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.